Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura in New York, Francine Lapua in London. Uh, the president saying he's going to travel to Texas tomorrow to uh, inspect what's continuing to happen there. The storm continuing to rage uh, over Houston, many parts of the state of Texas. He's going to head to St. Louis a little later uh, this week as well to talk about tax reform. A lot of politics and policy to talk about with the Congressman Mark Walker, who joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. He's a Republican who represents the 6th District in North Carolina. He's the head of the Republican Study Committee uh, as well. Let's start with... Uh, with the budget, with all the, the, the obligations the Congress faces when they get back here in, in September, I have to pass a funding bill, have to do something with, with the debt ceiling. Who are you listening to? Who should we be listening to in leadership for guidance on what's going to happen and when? Well, I, I believe, uh, first of all, I want to commend Chairwoman Diane Black and her work uh, on the Budget Committee. Uh, it's rare. Uh, I believe there have to go back 10 years where you had a unanimous Republican support on a budget, and there are members across the board, including Freedom Caucus members in there. So uh, I know she worked weekends, uh, stayed on the phone, but to pass that out of budget committee, I, I believe deserves a very quick vote, and we're certainly encouraging leadership to get it to the House floor. Uh, one of the things that we feel very impressed about it is over the next 10 years, it does take an honest look and reform uh, close to $200 billion out of some, specifically some of the Medicaid. Uh, we, we've seen um, the current health care uh, budget as we move forward adds another 40 million Americans to the uh, Medicaid rolls over the next 10 years. It's certainly something that we can't afford. And, and I will tell you, as a former pastor, I don't believe that uh, we are doing a service to people by continuing to create a spirit of enablement as opposed to maybe an incentive to be able to continue to pull yourselves uh, different levels out of out of poverty. So uh, when it comes to who we're listening to, uh, we're listening to Chairwoman Black, but we're also listening to leadership as well. Do people talk about regular order on Capitol Hill uh, anymore? Have we gotten used to this process of continuing resolution after continuing resolutions, uh, short-term funding bill after short-term funding bill? And, and, and do you think we're going to get back to a point where we see a regular to the budget process in Washington again. Well, being there in my second term, there's a legend that a regular order once happen, existed. Right? <laughs> yeah, but we're, I don't, I don't know how much of it. We, we talk a lot about it, but it's probably more rhetoric than anything else. Uh-huh. And there is some guys that are the uh, purest traditionalists as far as trying to get back to it. And I believe there's good measure and good reasoning why we should be focusing on it. Uh, however, we live in such interesting days, uh, back and forth with administration, different caucuses, uh, uh, different leadership uh, that, that's risen up even since I've been there. So mm-hmm. it's all over the map right now. On the issue of tax reform, uh, we've gotten a piece of paper from the White House. A few months later, we got two pieces of paper from the White House. We know that the border justice tax is no longer uh, on the table. What's your sense of the timetable here for, for tax reform? And, and is it a belief of yours that we need to get tax reform that's deficit neutral? Yeah, if I can get away from my talking points, sure. I believe there is a legitimate, <laughs> legitimate hope that this is something we can get across the board. Uh, I won't use the word hopeful and optimistic and all the different things that we talk about. But I, I, from what I'm seeing in the work with Kevin Brady and Ways and Means, um, he and Speaker Ryan, obviously, as you, as you just mentioned, were very keen and very hopeful that they could get this thing through with a board adjustment uh, tax because of what it would do to the growth immediately. Mm-hmm. 
that is something that we're going to have to look as far as how we do find that money somewhere else. Uh, but as far as when it comes to legitimate tax reform, uh, the first time in 31 years, uh, I believe there's some sign-off on from the White House, both with the Senate and uh, with the House. And I, that is something that we can never get to on the same page with health care. Mm-hmm. Every time this piece moved a little bit, then it, then it caused an equal and opposite reaction somewhere else. But I believe when it comes to tax reform, without putting a hard uh, timeline, I would be very surprised if we didn't have this passed before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, Congressman, what does it mean being a Republican in 2017? Is it more frustrating now than it was a year ago? I, I believe it is. Uh, I'm one that's relatively new to the political scene. Uh, I was a pastor for nearly 18 years and worked in business and finance right out of school for about five or six years. Um, but in the two and a half years, three years that I've been here uh, in, in the political scene, uh, my job is still continue to put a lot of attention, a lot of energy into relationships. I'm very proud that I represent uh, um, all of our communities. I represent the largest historical black college and university in, in all of the country, in my district, and making sure that Republicans are still talking about things that are important to us long-term when it comes to fiscal, but also understand there's there's a heart component to this uh, as far as how we message. Um, I've learned that Republicans are pretty notorious. They, they have a good objective long-term, I believe, but sometimes fumble in, in trying to express why that's important to all of our communities and not just to a select few. How's our president doing? How's your president doing, President Trump? Um, I believe that overall, uh, I would give marks uh, that are positive because of how much that we've been able to get done in the regulatory component. Obviously, it has impacted the markets uh, now that we're we're nine months almost into this, a 10 if you want to count since the inauguration. Uh, but moving into month number nine since um, since January the 20th, uh, there are things I feel like that continue to be improved. I remember speaking to him not too long ago and, and, and him remarking, hey, listen, I'm still, I'm still learning this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought I was uh, not one that had a, a huge pedigree of two and a half years. Uh, this is something that certainly he has uh, certainly more room to grow, more room to learn. Um, and I understand from a leadership component, when you've been someone that really hasn't been accountable to anyone else, uh, specifically in your line, there's n- there was no board he answered to, in uh, learning now that there are three equal branches and trying to find the balance and all mm-hmm. that, as well as trying to motivate people to pursue or to, to complete what he feels like is an agenda that the American people elected him to accomplish, all of that has been kind of a working order. Uh, have we arrived? We have not. But if you look at people like Tillerson and Mattis and Gorsuch, there are some wins here that I believe we can celebrate. Congressman, thank you very much for the time today. I appreciate uh, joining us here on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television uh, as well. That's Congressman Mark Walker, who represents the 6th District in North Carolina, the chair of the Republican Study Committee here on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Garay in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. This is Bloomberg. Good morning, David Gray in New York, Francine Lockway in London. Tom Keene is off today. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We continue, of course, to monitor the storm bearing down on Texas, on Houston in particular. That's Tropical Storm Harvey, downgraded from hurricane status, yet still pouring a ton of rain uh, on that city, flooding a huge issue there. And we'll have updates on the situation there throughout the morning. Uh, looking at today's agenda, the president scheduled to deliver a joint press conference with the president of Finland a little bit later uh, today. That's at 4.20 Wall Street time. We'll have coverage of that for you here, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Well, there's a lot of news on Friday afternoon. Of course, as the hurricane approached the Gulf Coast, uh, also the president electing to pardon the former sheriff of Maricopa County uh, in Arizona, controversial sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio. And um, the president wrote in a statement on the heels of that decision, uh, he's now 
Joe Arpaio, now 85 years old, and after more than 50 years of admirable service to our nation, he is a worthy candidate for a presidential pardon. Somebody who thinks differently about this is Noah Feldman. He's a professor of law at Harvard Law School, a columnist for Bloomberg View uh, as well. He's written about this. He wrote about this in advance of that pardon, saying if the president were to do that, uh, it could be an impeachable offense, in his words. Noah Feldman joins us now on our phone lines. Noah, Joe Arpaio, convicted of contempt of court uh, by Judge Susan Bolton. Explain you know, what, what, what he's being pardoned from. I think that's key here. It is absolutely key. The background here is that um, a group of citizens sued Arpaio and the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office for unconstitutionally detaining people, mostly Latinos, on suspicion that they were undocumented and then holding them indefinitely in prison. And a court held that that was unconstitutional, that it violated the basic rights of the people who were being detained. And the court ordered Arpaio and the office to stop doing it. Arpaio refused to stop doing it. And he told his staff, we're going to keep on doing exactly what we've been doing. At first, he was held in civil contempt. And then the Justice Department prosecuted him for criminal contempt, um, which is pretty unusual. And he was found guilty and sentenced to a fairly symbolic sentence of about six months. You write about the, the effect that this could have, this pardon could have on the, the integrity of, of the legal system. Just explain what you mean by that. The president, by doing this, calls into question sort of the, the strictures of, of our legal system in this country, in your estimation. Yeah, well, here's the thing. It's pretty rare for a sworn law enforcement official to be ordered by a court to do something and to flat out say, no, I'm not going to do it. It's even more rare when the thing that the, uh, the law enforcement official has done is to break the Constitution. And it's even rarer for the person then to be convicted by the courts, specifically of defying a court order. When the president pardons someone uh, under these conditions, what he's basically communicating is that it was fine for law enforcement to ignore what the courts told him to do, and that it was fine for him to violate the Constitution itself. So that's a basic challenge to the rule of law. It's saying that a law enforcement official can ignore the law, ignore the power of the courts to say what the law is and do whatever he wants, including violate the constitutional rights of ordinary people. And that's pretty stunning, frankly. It's pretty different than a situation where someone is pardoned for committing a crime, because in this instance, the problem is not so much that what Arpaio did is against the law, it's that it was in direct violation of what a judge told him the Constitution required. Right, but no, you suggest this is an impeachable offense, but then I thought the president could pardon who he wanted. Great question. Bottom line is this. It's true that the president can pardon whomever he chooses to pardon, probably himself excluded, in the sense that once the pardon is issued, Arpaio can't go to jail. I mean, the pardon worked in that sense. It doesn't mean that the president is free of any sanction for what he's done. If the president abuses his power by pardoning people, let's say, who are close to him or to serve his own interests, or in this instance, to basically fundamentally contravene the idea that the Constitution binds law enforcement officials. The thing that we can do about that is to invoke the impeachment power. And it's not just me who's saying that. Uh, In 1789, when they were ratifying the Constitution of the United States at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, James Madison, who was the lead draftsman of the Constitution, was asked specifically about the pardon power. The people were saying, well, we shouldn't have a pardon power in the Constitution. It's a bad idea. What if the president abuses the pardon power? Madison said essentially, well, if the president abuses the pardon power, you can impeach him. That's the power you have available to you. 
So the idea here is that the pardon power is not, it's absolute in the sense the president can do it if he wants to, but it's not outside the bounds of sanction. And the sanction that's available is impeachment. Right. You have to refresh my memory because it's been a couple of years that I haven't uh, done constitutional law. This is not the abuse of power article, right? This is, you're talking about something else, Noah. Well, in the Constitution, um, a president can be impeached for what are called high crimes and misdemeanors. But by tradition, this was very clear to the founders, high crimes and misdemeanors does not mean breaking a statute. It doesn't mean breaking a law only. It would include that. But it also means any abuse of the presidential power. And that is uh, part of the impeachment structure. And it's been a case when previous presidents have been impeached that Congress has not restricted itself to presidential violation of a written statute. They've also gone after the president for what they considered abuses of power. So abuse of power is a sort of general catch-all phrase that I'm using to capture the idea of high crimes and misdemeanors, and that would cover impeachment. There's plenty of things the president can do that would deserve impeachment that don't violate a specific law that's on the books, but that obviously subvert the structure of the Constitution and subvert the rule of law. Noah Feldman, what does this, uh, this story, this case, tell us about the, the relationship between the federal government and the state's government? Just reading between the lines here in the statement from the White House and from what I've read uh, of the, uh, the former sheriff, uh, it seems like um, there are a lot of people who think that he was simply taking, a, uh, t- <laughs> t- taking the rule of law into his own hand rightfully, that the federal government wasn't doing what it needed to do when it comes to protecting the, 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 federal, the border with, with Mexico. He was doing that. But what does this say about the state of, of that relationship between states and, and the U.S. federal government? Well, it's pretty badly afraid. Um, in this instance, a state uh, elected official was violating the Constitution. Now, he may have been doing it because he thought that the federal government needed to do more, but that the, the federal court, uh, which convicted him and which ordered him not to do what he was doing, believed that he had overstepped his bounds. If he was just enforcing federal law, he would not have been convicted, or Pio would not have been convicted of contempt of court. This was not about him acting in a way that um, the federal court didn't want a state official to act. This was about Arpaio acting in a way that no official can act under the Constitution. Um, it's also true that, in principle, Arpaio could still be charged under state law uh, or convicted of contempt under state law. And if that happens, the president would not actually have been able to pardon him at all. So this is, in fact, an instance of the president intervening, as is his power to do, over the federal courts. And the federal courts we're doing what they're empowered to do by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, namely supervise state officials and make sure they're not violating the Constitution um, under color of law, which is exactly what Arpaio was doing. Noah Feldman, what does this tell you about this president's attitude toward presidential pardons? I can look back at all of the pardons that President Obama made, a lot of them centered on uh, drug cases uh, in, in particular. Um, there are a lot of people here wondering uh, sort of what lessons we can draw from this particular pardon, uh, how it might be used, say, in the, the Russian investigation, how the president might use his power of pardoning going forward. What lessons can you draw? Well, I'm wary of, of the interpretation that says that this is some sort of a, a message, uh, with, specifically with respect to the Russian investigation. Um, what I think is very clear here is that the president ignored the usual process that other presidents have in the past gone through before they chose to make a pardon. There's a special pardon office in the Department of Justice. It was ignored here. Ordinarily, appeals have to be exhausted. That was not the case here. Uh, Ordinarily, this goes through a complex and complete vetting process before any pardon is issued. I'm not saying that every past pardon is one that I would agree with, but in this instance, the president circumvented those usual processes. It also happened early in his term rather than late in his term, 
a way of saying, essentially, I don't care what people think about this. I'm going to do it on my own. So if nothing else, this communicates the president thinks that it's within his authority and that he can politically get away with pardoning people whenever he wants and probably however he wants. It suggests the willingness to be uh, quick with the pardoning power. But no, so who's advising the president actually on all matters of law and constitutional powers? Are they ill-advising him or is the president just ignoring it? Well, in this instance, um, the usual process that would have been created through the Department of Justice, through the pardon office, we've been told was not followed at all. So the strong suggestion is that the, the procedures that are ordinarily in place to advise the president simply were ignored and didn't, were not followed. Often the White House counsel's office would also be involved in the pardon process. Um, and we haven't been told publicly whether, in fact, the White House counsel was involved in this process or not. Now, again, constitutionally, the president doesn't have to listen to anybody. He can pardon whomever he, he chooses to pardon. Um, but those procedures have been put in place by previous administrations with the goal of rationalizing the process and not making a pardon look like it violates the basic principle of legality, which I think this pardon does look like. David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. Tom Keene is off today. I'm looking at news out of Berkeley, California. Big protest yesterday there in Martin Luther King Jr. Civic Center Park. A big confrontation between uh, Antifa and uh, anti-fascist anarchist protesters and uh, others who were gathered there. Around 2,000 people were gathered in that park uh, yesterday. And I just wanted to bring in our, our guest, Noah Feldman, who's a law professor at Harvard uh, Law, of course, columnist for Bloomberg View, to talk a bit about uh, free speech in light of the protests that we've seen here, in light of the, the protests from both sides that we've seen here over these last few weeks, uh, of course, most paramount being uh, in, in Charlottesville. When you look at history and how we deal with free speech, uh, no matter how, how, how vile it is, uh, what have you been thinking about over these last few weeks, Noah? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of really fascinating and subtle issues. The most important one is that we need to keep on distinguishing two different things. We need to distinguish peaceful protest, which is protected by the First Amendment and should be protected by the First Amendment, no matter how vile the content is, from violent incitement, which is when you take an action that you know is likely to cause an imminent incitement to violence, and is actually causing that. Not just that you know it's going to cause that, but it is, in fact, going to cause that. The police have every right to prevent the latter from happening. So if there are groups that are confronting each other and there are people trying to provoke violence, then the police are wholly within their rights, and indeed, I would say, their responsibilities to stand in between and to separate people and to make sure that violence doesn't break out. We don't usually think about it this way, but without the police protecting us against violence, the free speech right that we have becomes pretty empty. And so we actually need both components. We need the order on the streets in order to ensure that our free speech rights are protected. You know, it strikes, to me, strikes me as we talk about this, as we talk about the Jorapayo uh, case as well. The, the ACLU is at the center of both of these, these stories. And, of course, the ACLU has said it's no longer going to represent uh, hate groups that uh, march with, with firearms. What do you make of, of that decision there? Obviously, uh, the ACLU has taken heat, as it often does uh, from both sides here, for, for a decision like that one. Yeah, I mean, I think the ACLU needs to, and I think is trying, for better or worse, to carve out a space that protects peaceful speech, but that doesn't open the door to, you know, armed groups marching in what looks like ordinary military formation. Because when that happens, those people are really potentially dominating the streets, potentially either provoking violence or intimidating other people. And there you have the confluence of two different rights. Mm -hmm. You have a a Second Amendment right to bear arms, and a First Amendment right to speak and to associate. So in theory, it sounds like what well, should be fine. If you can march peacefully, that's fine. If you can carry weapons peacefully, then that should be fine. 
But if you actually do both together, then at some point you cease to be um, a peaceful marcher and you actually become a militia that's challenging the authority of the police. And that, I think, the law does not protect. And the ACLU was trying to find, I think, a way to, to, to weigh in there. It's hard for the ACLU because traditionally their position has been absolutist. You know, they have gone for the most extreme free speech positions possible. You know, you remember they actually supported what became the Supreme Court's holding in the Citizens United case, uh, which maximized corporate free speech. So traditionally they've been absolutist. Here they're pulling back from that a little bit, probably in the wake of Charlottesville and other, other recent events. But so, no, what you're arguing is that basically to almost avoid a situation where um, too many radicals, you know, contribute to destabilization, you just need a, a much bigger, so you protect free speech, but you have a much bigger police force. Is that right? Yeah, you need a bigger police force. Sometimes you need to assign different groups, different locations to march. In theory, it's great to be able to say, well, we can march wherever we want. But if you have a large group of anti-fascist protesters and a large group of, let's say, neo-Nazi or white supremacist protesters, it's constitutionally permissible for the police to say, you're not marching right in front of each other. You have to be separated by, you know, thus and such a distance. And we're going to put this group of you here, and we're going to put this group of you there. And, of course, it's always controversial when the police do that, much in the way it was controversial when the police isolated protesters at the Democratic and Republican National Conventions in, in recent years, moving them away from the convention location. But the police are justified in specifying time, place, and manner of speech when um, it's necessary for safety and security. So you also need to keep people apart from each other. And last but not least, the police have to be very well trained so that they know the difference between peaceful speaking and potentially violent provocation. You can't just expect police intuitively to be able to do that. They need to be trained in order to make sure that free speech is protected while simultaneously mm. order is preserved. Noah, always great to speak with you. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time here on this Monday morning. Noah Feldman, now Felix Frankfurt, a professor of law at Harvard Law School, columnist for Bloomberg View, uh, writing prolifically and importantly uh, for Bloomberg View. Do check out his columns. I'll tweet his latest on Joe Arpaio. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura and Francine Lacqua. Tom Keene is off today. Now, speaking in an interview with Bloomberg uh, and Kathleen Hayes and Jackson Hole, Governor Crota said the BOJ's yield-curving control program has been working quite well. Now, he was talking about the fact that he also needs to have more very accommodative monetary policy. He warned that his inflation target remains distant and that the current pace of growth looks unsustainable. Here is Governor Crota. 4% uh, growth is excellent. But uh, we don't think 4% growth can be sustained. Around 2% growth is likely. Under this amount of growth, uh, inflation rate would gradually uh, climb up toward uh, 2%. That was Governor Kuroda speaking to our Kathleen Hayes over in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Now, let's bring in Alice Rivlin. She is former Fed vice chair from our D.C. studios. Uh, Ms. Rivlin, thank you so much for joining us today. What did you make of Jackson Hole? It was rather uneventful compared to previous you know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming um, forums. And yet we learned a little bit more about how they see risk. Yes, and I thought we learned actually quite a lot. I thought that Janet Yellen's speech focused on exactly the right topic. She hardly mentioned monetary policy at all, uh, which uh, I thought was appropriate. She mentioned and discussed at considerable length the case for 
uh, continued vigilance about instability in the financial markets and particularly the risks of rolling back the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, which uh, she quite persuasively uh, pointed out has made our financial system a lot safer and less uh, subject to the kind of turmoil that we experienced in 2008. Alice Rivlin, what is the one thing that actually Governor Kuroda has not said? I guess you know, reading between the lines, he's worried about the Fed, isn't he? Well, he may be worried about the Fed, uh, but I think he's more worried about the Japanese economy, which is uh, persistently uh, deflationary. That's been the same story for uh, for many, many years. And uh, uh, I, I think that has got to be his major concern. Alice, uh, great to speak with you here on this uh, this Monday morning. Uh, I wonder if we could shift our attention to Europe a little bit as well. We heard from Mario Draghi, the president of, of the ECB. There was some speculation that he might try to jawbone the euro a little bit, talk it down. Uh, he didn't do that. What did you make of what, what he had to say, and what do you make of the, the, the situation he faces uh, on the European continent right now? Well, he faces a more difficult situation, I think, than, than Janet Yellen does, uh, in part because he doesn't have a cohesive country. He's got a, a whole group of uh, economies that are uh, not uh, entirely in sync, and that's uh, always very, very difficult. But I thought he, like Yellen, uh, made the right speech for Jackson Hole, pointing out that the big threat was uh, not from uh, inflation. It was from uh, the possibility of trade war or deteriorating uh, regulatory uh, cooperation among the major countries. Uh, on the issue of, of regulation, we'll come back and talk a little bit more more about this. Um, but um, just summarize for us, if you would, what, what Janet Yellen's thinking is on, on bank regulation at, at this point. She was making a pretty forceful defense for some of the regulations that have been implemented. But she, she also spoke of it as sort of a plastic thing, right, that it, it, it's, it's useful to reevaluate or to constantly evaluate the efficacy of regulations. Yes, and I think she's absolutely right about that. Uh, we put some st much stronger regulations in place after 2008, uh, but uh, and they seem to be working, but we haven't tested them yet. And uh, what she was warning against was wholesale rolling back, although she did stress, and she's right, that you have to keep reevaluating regulations. There's no such thing as a permanent regulatory regime. You have to adjust, and particularly you have to make sure that the costs of the regulation to the financial sector isn't excessive. But uh, she made that point. All right, Alice, thank you so much. Alice Rivlin there, the former Fed vice chair, stays with us. We'll be talking to her a little bit more about, I guess, possible currency wars, what we made also of the rest of the FOMC members we talked to. We had two Federal Reserve officials talking to our Michael McKee, also taking opposite sides of, I guess, David, this central bank ongoing debate, right, about how you respond to disappointingly low inflation. Of course, policymakers gathered in the um, at Jackson Hole at the annual symposium were pretty tame, three years ago, we had Mario Draghi saying, you know, he'll do whatever it takes and actually put a number on the balance sheet. This time, we're in a different move. We did hear from Kansas City Fed President Esther George uh, saying that uh, it will all depend on whether the economic data in the U.S. will hold up on whether there is another opportunity or not to raise interest rates again in 2017. So we'll talk more about Jackson Hole and we'll talk dollar dynamics.
David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. We're joined by Alice Rivlin in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. She's the former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Alice, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school when I say that the last time I saw you in Washington, you said uh, the media tends to focus too much on monetary policy and not enough on regulatory uh, policy. So let's continue talking about it. If, if, if we could here, we're looking at a, a Fed that could be radically changed from a personnel perspective. And I wonder what that could pretend for, for its regulatory responsibilities. Do you see them shifting here over these next a few months, few years? Well, I think there's a risk that the administration and the Congress will roll back uh, regulatory uh, financial regulation more than I and Janet Yellen uh, think uh, is wise. That was the burden of her speech. Uh, be very careful. It's the the big threat to the stability of the U.S. economy is that uh, we have another 2008. We don't want that to happen. Uh, so be very careful about deregulation. Now, I'm not sure that the president and uh, many of the uh, Republican majority in Congress uh, agree with that message, and they may try to roll back regulation, they might including try- putting a much more uh, deregulatory person uh, at, uh, at the Fed. A much more deregulatory person at the Fed. I, I, I wonder, as we have this conversation about personnel, who might lead the Fed, who might be in these jobs, how much an academic background matters. You have one, of course. Uh, Janet Yellen has one. Ben Bernanke had one uh, as well. There's, there's speculation that the next appointee might not come from that background, might be somebody from the world of business with, oh, just a, a BA degree from, from some well, academic we- institution. Does that matter to you? Do, you? do you think that makes a difference, whether or not somebody has the academic background? Uh, not necessarily. It would depend who it was. The uh, tradition of uh, having a Ph.D. in economics is uh, is pretty strong uh, at the Fed. Uh, uh, but market experience and financial sector experience is extremely important. Uh, the real criterion, I would think, is uh, is this person really familiar with how the economy works and how markets work and committed uh, – uh, both to a uh, sensible monetary policy and uh, to uh, keeping us safe uh, from another financial crisis. All right, Alice, we're beating around the bush here. It's Gary Cohn, a right person for Fed. Oh, I'm not going to endorse. <laughs> I'm not going to endorse good try, anybody. Good try. <laughs> Very nice try. <laughs> okay, but but would um, a former banker be the the kind of profile that could be good for the Fed? Well, it would depend who it was, but I think you could find somebody from the financial sector uh, who would do a very good job. It doesn't have to be an academic Ph.D. economist, although I think we were extremely fortunate uh, in the crisis of 2008 to have Ben Bernanke at the helm because not only was he a very highly qualified academic, but he was an expert on what they did wrong in the 1930s and very determined not to do that again. Yeah. Change, change positions here a little bit. Um, you know, I know that when there's a big storm like the one that we're seeing in Texas, the, the Federal Reserve is on alert. Of course, the Federal Reserve bears some responsibility for the, the banking system here in the U.S., uh, of course. What does the Fed do when there's something like this, when people may have difficulty getting to banks or just banking normally? This is, this is part of the Fed's responsibility as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And the Fed communicates uh, with the banking and financial sector that it stands ready uh, to help and that uh, they shouldn't uh, worry about uh, liquidity. They should uh, be as helpful to their clients as they possibly can be. You, of course, were the, uh, the two-time director of the Congressional Budget Office, and, and let me ask you a bit about sort of the, the challenges that lawmakers face when they get to Washington uh, in just over, a, I guess, maybe a little less than a week, so just over a little less than a week as we're on the precipice of reaching uh, September. Uh, do, do, you, do you foresee there being real difficulties here passing some sort of spending bill uh, in time to avert a, a government shutdown? How worried are you about that and, of course, about the uh, reaching the debt ceiling and, and not seeing that raised uh, in time to meet the, the government's obligations? I'm medium worried. Uh, I think uh, cooler heads may prevail, and uh, we will probably get a short-term continuing resolution, as they call it, to keep the government funded past the end of the fiscal year so that they can then uh, make some more serious decisions in uh, November, perhaps even into December. That seems to me uh, the most likely. I don't expect that we will have a government shutdown, but we might. And the president is still threatening, if he doesn't get his border wall, uh, to close down the government. I hope that doesn't happen. On the debt ceiling, uh, I really hope that uh, Secretary Mnuchin and others can convince the Congress and the president that it would be just terribly stupid for uh, the United States to even flirt with a debt crisis. We don't need to do that. We should raise the debt ceiling as much as is necessary to accommodate the spending uh, and revenues that have already been voted. How should the Fed look at this risk? We heard from billionaire head fund manager Ray Dalio uh, that you know it's time to offload risk, and this is mainly because of what's happening in Washington. Well, uh, yes, I mean the Fed looks at it uh, nervously uh, as uh, as we as we all do, but uh, uh, I don't think the Fed has a real role. These are. Of fiscal matters to be decided between the president and the Congress uh, as to uh, when we uh, fund the government adequately and uh, when we raise the debt ceiling. The Fed can stand on the side and look nervous, but that's about all it can do. Right, but it, by looking nervous, would they be right, for example, it, for example, in delaying a hike because of this renewed politic uncertainty? Well, they might, um, but uh, the economy itself uh, looks pretty strong and uh, inflation, while not up to the 2 percent target, uh, isn't doing – isn't plummeting. Uh, So um, I think that will be the main things on their mind. Uh, They might be uh, a little more cautious because of the turmoil in the Congress, but – Uh, I would expect that mostly the conversation would be about is the economy strong enough for us to keep on the track that we'd like to be on, namely get back to a more normal interest rate. 
You know, the, the, the Fed hasn't been shy about saying it's not going to speculate what the, the federal government's going to do when it comes to tax reform or fiscal policy, regulatory reform, all of that. But how much does it complicate things? The Fed has taken some criticism for how it forecasts, how well it forecasts. Give us a sense of just the, the complexity infused into that process by having so much uncertainty in Washington right now. Well, they certainly have to take it uh, into account, uh, but um, uh, that's a question without an answer, really. Uh, the uh, Everybody is a little nervous, the turmoil in Washington or uh, hurricanes on the Gulf Coast uh, or other sources of uncertainty uh, may, uh, may be there, uh, but uh, you make your best forecast and uh, stick and go with it. Just lastly here, does Washington feel – is there more uncertainty than there has been? We're talking about the debt ceiling again. You and I have talked about it, you know, eight out of the nine last years, it feels like. Does this time feel different to you in Washington? Yes, I think it does feel different, and it's largely because we have a quite inexperienced and unpredictable president. Uh, we don't know what Donald Trump thinks about uh, – uh, the uh, debt ceiling or uh, other things and how much he is willing to risk chaos uh, to get some of the things that he cares deeply mm. about, like the border wall. Alice, great to speak with you as always. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time uh, this morning. Alice Rivlin, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, former Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve, as I said, two-time Director of the Congressional Budget Office, joining us from our 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. this morning. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. David Gura in New York, Francine Lockwood in London. Tom Keene is off today. Big news here in the U.S. as well. We continue to watch what's unfolding in Texas. A pleasure now to be joined by James Lee Witt, who is a former director of FEMA. He joins us on our phone lines. Great to have you with us as, as all of this continues to unfold, as, as I say, this, this terrible storm in Texas. What are you watching for when it comes to government response? In other words, how should we be assessing the degree to which things are, are going apace, Mr. Witt? Well, I think, the, you know, the president appointed Brock Long as administrator of FEMA, who's a former state director of emergency management, who's is very experienced, very capable, and I think he'll be leading FEMA extremely well. And uh, and all the eight years I was at FEMA, the FEMA employees are very dedicated about what they do, and so I think that will go well in supporting the state and local governments. And I and I think the president has done everything right so far. You know, he made the declar- disaster declaration Friday, and um, and that was very important for the state and locals to know that uh, a lot of these costs are going to be reimbursable. And I think the trip that he's making down uh, to Texas tomorrow is important just to show the people that the federal government is there behind them and will be there uh, for the long haul. I think it will be important that he uh, meet with the governor and local officials as much as he can without disrupting the response. But also I think it's important that uh, he, if he can, reach out into where a shelter is and let Mm. those people know and give them hope. Because uh, right now, you know, they're devastated. They've lost everything. They've worked for all their life. And uh, this could come down as the costliest catastrophic event we've seen in the United States. Help us just understand what FEMA is doing at this point. As I said, the, the storm is still raging. It's pouring rain uh, across Houston and the surrounding area. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of flooding here. What, what at this point is FEMA uh, and, and all the groups it's working with, what are they doing at this point? 
Well, primarily uh, FEMA's role right now is uh, to be responsive to state and local government and what resources they request. And uh, FEMA, you know, has the full federal government uh, behind them that they coordinate all those resources. So it's, they're right now in, in, in the role of uh, responding with those resources, supporting the state and local governments and what their needs are. And then after this, that is the response is finished and the lives are saved and, and you get into the recovery side of it, then FEMA will take a more prominent role, particularly in the public assistance side as well as the individual assistance side. And uh, and so then, you know, after they get the, all the assessments done, after this water goes down, and then what's going to be important is, is what's the governor going to ask for, you know, I would ask for 100% reimbursable cost and the response. Uh, for how long that takes, and then whatever the cost share will be to state and local governments after mm. that, which could be ninety ten or it could be seventy five twenty five. But I would definitely ask for one hundred percent for yeah. this uh, time. Mr. Witt, thank you very much for the time. Hope we can check in with you a little later uh, this week as we continue to watch the response to the uh, tropical storm uh, over Texas right now. It's James Lee Witt, former director of FEMA, joining us on our phone lines. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.